0: All right, so before we turn to Psalm 46, um, you might want to turn to 2 Kings 18. So hopefully, maybe some of you, maybe most of you are familiar with the story of Hezekiah and the Assyrians knocking on the door. So the Assyrians were a feared power at the time. And if you look at 2 Kings 18, 17 the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and the Rabsiris and the Rabshakeh, these are, you know, high-ranking military governmental officials with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. So they are threatening attack. And the Rabshakeh said to the people on the wall, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? In other words, he stopped paying tribute, um, stopped paying tax to the Assyrian king in order to, you know, keep him happy. So now he's coming to, you know, get his tribute. So Hezekiah tears his clothes. He goes before the Lord because they're pretty much helpless before this great host, this army. And in 1819, he prays and says, I'm sorry, I think it's 1919. Um, he says, So now, O God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may, may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So Isaiah actually comes on the scene because Hezekiah and Isaiah are contemporaries. And he prophesies the downfall of Assyria. And so then here's what happens. Look at verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. He's not even going to shoot an arrow here. He will not come against it with shield or cast up a siege mound against it by the way that he came, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I, the Lord, will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh, capital of Assyria. And he, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Eserhad and his son reigned in his place. So why do I bring that up? Well, it's a pretty good possibility that this is the background Psalm 46. At least you'll see how it would fit as far as a backstory. So keep it in mind to kind of picture the truths and the power of Psalm 46. Um, The other thing I would say is that Psalm 46 does lack specific references, and that's actually helpful because that means it's intended to have a broad application. So Psalm 46 is a helpful backdrop. It's helpful to keep that in mind as we go through it, but also realize that um, it, it doesn't have overly specific references, which then helps us understand that it applies broadly in our lives. Um, psalm 46 was apparently Martin Luther's favorite psalm. It's the inspiration for A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we sung. And Luther once said this, we sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us, and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. So we're going to see in Psalm 46 that God is our help and our hope. And it's a call to run to him and hide in him as our refuge. All right? So... Psalm 46, you want to flip over there so you can follow along, and um, there's also going to be the outline here on the screens if you have an electronic device and you want to pull up the notes. um, You can follow along that way as well. The, The link to the notes is on the live stream page. All right. So point number one, God is our help. Verse one of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble. So this first verse is like the psalm in a nutshell, along with the chorus, the refrain of verse 7 and 11. That's like the summary of this psalm. And maybe this is familiar territory. Maybe you know this psalm well. Um, it's well known for good reason, because it's such a rich source of encouragement and comfort for suffering and struggling believers. So I, I don't know about you, but I've come back to it over and over again over the years. I've shared it with people over and over again over the years, and it's such a source of strength and encouragement. But let's just make sure we don't miss some of the richness that's here. So we slow down and see what's here. So God is our refuge. He is a protective and mighty fortress to keep us safe from external threats and external harm. So the world is filled with trouble. I don't think I need to Convince any of you of that? Political turmoil, economic threats, health concerns. Personally, you might be, you might have some unfair criticism that's been coming your way. The flaming darts of the evil one aimed at your faith to destroy it. So we can be attacked, we can be harassed, we are vulnerable. There are real threats out there. But God is our refuge. He is a protective shelter. We have somewhere to go. We have someone to go to. And there is no one stronger. There is no safer place than running to God. But we also know that when we're on the run or when we're under threat, oftentimes we bring the biggest trouble with us, don't we? Our own fears and doubts and anxiety and weariness. So, even if we're inside a safe place, we still have this stuff churning within. Sometimes we want to give up, we want to throw in the towel. And I mean, some of you may literally want to throw in the towel. Are any of you struggling with thoughts of suicide? Whether or not you've actually had suicidal thoughts, many of you might be deeply weary. It feels like a Herculean effort just to get out of the bed in in the morning. Life's just kind of lost all of its color. Maybe you go back and forth between anger and despair. Some of you might just be flat out sad, deeply sad. Things haven't turned out as you hoped. Doesn't seem like anything's going to get any better anytime soon. And I'm not just talking about a pandemic or the coronavirus, like maybe that's not helping, but can be even bigger and wider angle lens than that. So Psalm 46 is not trying to take the Bible verse to a soul level bullet wound, but just allow yourself to really hear Psalm 46. God. God Himself is our strength. He wants to be your strength. This is internal strength. He's not just external stone walls of protection, you know, though He is that. He's also internal sustaining grace and strength for today. So He's external protection and He's internal grace and help and hope. And he wants you to hear this third truth. He is a very present help in trouble. He's not too busy for you. He's not indifferent to you or aloof. He's not too important or too great, too exalted to be available. So he's not only able to help as a mighty fortress externally protecting you, He's not only able to help by his mighty spirit internally strengthening you, he is willing to help. He wants to help. He's not hiding from you. So if you are struggling, don't struggle alone. I'd be happy to talk to you. Share what you're going through with a trusted member of your community group. Or if you're comfortable, share it with your whole group. We are all desperately needy. We're des- we all desperately need God. We desperately need help from one another, brothers and sisters, fellow pilgrims. So don't think you're weird or you're a failure because everybody else seems to have it all together. They don't. They're just too afraid to admit that they don't. <laughs> which proves my point. They don't have it all together because they can't even admit that they don't have it all together. Which, did you catch that? Okay. So, let's meditate on this verse this week. Emphasize. You know how to meditate on Scripture? Just one way to do it is emphasize each word and think it through and pray it back to God. God is my refuge. Who's God? What's He like? If we have this, you know, pint-sized God, then this isn't going to mean much. But if we have the Bible informing our view of what God is like in His greatness and His glory and His goodness... If that God is my refuge, and God is my refuge. This is, this is true right now, no matter what I feel is a bigger truth, or you know, pressing him out to the periphery as if he's small and this trouble is so big, wait, God is. God is my refuge. God is my refuge. You see how you could think about this for a while. You could ponder this. You could pray, Lord, help me believe it. Help me have a huge vision of who you are, who you truly are. Not tame and domesticate you as if this is a small promise. No, this is a huge promise because God is huge and he's awesome and he's powerful and he's good and he's great. So let's meditate on this truth, this reality, and let it sink down into our souls. Because if it does, look at the result in verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear. We need not fear. That doesn't mean bad things won't happen. That doesn't mean Christians are, you know, like stoics, pain don't hurt, you know. We're not Zen Buddhists, you know, with our suffering. No. But with God protecting us, with God strengthening us, with God readily available to us, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil. We don't have to be enslaved to fear because He is with us. So remember, verse 1 said, God is a very present help in trouble. And look at how bad the trouble can get, and we still don't have to fear. Look at how verse 2 ends and chapter 3, or verse 3 goes. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So it can be as bad as can be. So even trouble as bad as the earth, like literally falling apart, coming undone, the most solid, stable, immovable structures we know, the earth itself and the mountains. If there was a cosmic earthquake and the mountains just crumble down into the sea, we don't have to fear. I mean, this is like the ultimate picture of, you know, dystopian apocalyptic future, right? I mean, how many movies are there like this? Why are there movies like this? Because it's a common fear. Fear. We fear the world is just falling apart. But this passage is saying, even if it does, we don't have to fear because God is our refuge. The creator of the earth and the mountains and everything is our refuge and strength. So no part of creation is out of his control. He brought order from the chaos. Everything was without form and void. And he spoke omnipotently powerful words and ordered the chaos and filled the emptiness, the void. So even in the midst of the undoing of creation, we wouldn't have to fear because he's with us and because we have a city that's unshakable. Look at verses four to six, the city of God. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of god the holy habitation of the most high god is in the midst of her she shall not be moved god will help her when morning dawns the nations rage the kingdoms totter he utters his voice the earth melts so this city of god thing so in original context, it's Jerusalem, special place of God's presence. But the city of God ends up being shorthand for the kingdom of God. So there's the kingdom, the kingdoms of this world, there's the city of man, and there's the city of God. And all of the kingdoms of this world, the city of man is shakeable, um, shaky, it's vulnerable, but the kingdom of God, the city of God is unshakable and secure. She shall not be moved. And then, did you see it? God will help her when morning dawns. You Remember back to 2 Kings 19? They woke up in the morning and all the threats were gone. 185,000 dead bodies. Like God fought for them. He helped them. So the nations may rage and the kingdoms are moved. Same word as verse 5. Shall not be moved. So the The city of God shall not be moved. The kingdoms are moved when the nations rage. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. So, what's the deal with this, you know, uh, there's a river here, there was a sea earlier in verses 2 and 3. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, the sea represented chaos and untamable hostility. Okay, so you can imagine how many people lost their lives, for instance, just on the sea in those days. They didn't have, I mean, we still lose people on the sea, but we've got radar and, you know, all kinds of stuff to help. So the seas took on this spiritual dimension, not just physical threats, but also a spiritual dimension in that the sea was considered to be the home of evil spiritual powers. So Psalm 89, 9 to 10 says this about God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And then obviously Jesus said, Peace be still. But also, look at verse 10 you crushed Rahab, which is likely like a personification of Egypt, this enemy of God, evil power. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. In the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, you have evil beasts rising out of the sea. Revelation 13.1 says this, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head, heads. So, again, the sea has these connotations of chaos. In fact, if you think about Jesus in Mark 4 and 5, do you remember the stilling of the storm? Do you know what story comes right after that? After the stilling of the storm... It's the Gerasene demoniac. So Jesus says, peace be still to the elements. Is that just to show his power over nature? It is to show his power over nature, but it's more than that. Because he says, peace be still to that demoniac who's, you know, uh, possessed by a legion of demons, thousands of demons. And where did those demons go when Jesus cast them out? To the pigs upon the hill. And where'd the pigs go once the demons enter the pigs? Back down into the sea. So peace be still. He's sovereign over the sea and all the chaos. And he comes and says, peace be still to this man. And those demons go right back into the sea. This place of chaos and evil. So... This, let me just carry this through, so you can see this um, kind of ancient Near Eastern mindset. That's why there's no more sea in Revelation 21:1. Okay. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was and the sea was no more. Don't worry if you like the sea, like oh bummer, we're not going to be able to like you know surf in heaven. We're not going to be no 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 no. The point is, there's no more of this hostility doesn't mean there's not going to be bodies of water in the new heavens and the new earth. It means the chaos, the spiritual rebellion associated with the sea will be no more. Now, again, ancient Near Eastern mindset. Rivers, on the other hand, have many positive life-giving connotations. They were associated with the benevolent and life-giving rule of gods and kings in the ancient Near Eastern mindset. So sometimes there were these images and descriptions of rivers flowing from the temple of a god or from the throne of a king. So there's no more sea in Revelation 21.1, but look at Revelation 22.1-2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So despite the chaotic and threatening waters of verse 3, Yahweh turns the water into blessing and gladness in his city, in his kingdom. He controls, he's sovereign over the life-threatening sea, and his city has a river that is life-giving, and it brings gladness. So the city of man may shake and fall, and eventually all of them will, but the city of God is unshakable. It is ultimately, eternally secure because God dwells there. It has God's help. It's what we were talking about in Philippians a few weeks ago, chapter 1, chapter 3, where Paul says your citizenship is in heaven so nobody can steal your identity from you. If you are in Christ, you're safe. To live as Christ, to die is gain. So the kingdoms of this world will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God is unshakable. So the most powerful representatives of the city of man may rage. The nations rage, verse 6. But God's mere bark is worse than the bite of the most powerful nations. He utters his voice and the earth melts. So. In contrast to the shakeability of the city of man, the city of God, verse 5, shall not be moved. So if verse 1 in this psalm is a nutshell of the whole psalm, verse 7 now is the message of this psalm in a chorus or a refrain. Okay, And may God make it to stick in our heads better than you know that 80s song that you wake up singing in the shower or that keeps running through your head or whatever decade you grew up and absorbed the most amount of lyrics. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is everybody awake? Um, There's some decade, and out of of the blue, you know, these lyrics go in your head. Well, let's learn this song so well that this is the one that's on repeat in our minds and in our hearts. So let's not miss the chorus here. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. We'll see it again in verse 11. We'll come to it again. But here it is first in verse 7. Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So, again, I use the language of chorus on purpose because did you notice the heading of the psalm? To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. This is a song. Psalm 46 is supposed to be a song. It's supposed to be sung. Why? Why do we sing? Why do I like music? Why do I love listening to Shay and Shane sing Psalm 46? And we sung it just a few minutes ago. I think it's because some truth just has to be sung. Okay, reality is greater than just mere propositions. It's why there's a songbook in the Bible and not just a systematic theology of our faith. God's not just an abstract, well, He's not an abstract concept. He's the greatest of all realities. He's not just true, He's also good and beautiful. So we should not just think about God, though we should. He's also worthy to be praised and thanked (coughs) and exalted in. He's our glory, He's our joy. So song gives expression to our joy, praise, our confidence. And when we are down, how many times has this happened for you? Song can revive us when we're desperately in need of joy and confidence and encouragement. I've gone to Psalm 46. Again, I'd encourage you to type in Shane and Shane, Psalm 46. Gone to that song over and over again. And if I am like down in the dumps, I'm like on top of the mountain by the time that song's over, ready to run through a wall. So maybe you've got some go-to songs. That's what Psalm 46 is intended to be, a go-to psalm for people who live in a world filled with trouble and things that make us feel insecure and fearful. So God knows what we need and how we need it to be mediated to our souls. So thank God for music and for songs like this and for artists who help us to feel what's true, not just know something in our heads and there's this massive distance between our heads and our hearts. Songs sometimes bring those together in a gloriously powerful way. Now, the chorus of this song, Yahweh of hosts, what's that mean? So Lord of hosts, is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress what's this mean what are we saying means he's the commander of the armies of heaven you remember that time when elisha and his servant when the host of syrians came out in war against israel and the servant is freaking out second kings 6:15 i think it's up there when the servant of the man of god rose early in the morning and went out behold an army with horses and chariots was all around the city i mean Don't let this just be at arm's length. Whether it was the Assyrians knocking on the door when Hezekiah was king, or here. If if you get overrun, this means really bad stuff. People get slaughtered. Women are raped. You're homeless. You're dragged away as a slave. Like, these are real threats. This stuff really happened. Okay? So, feel that. And so... Elisha's servant is scared. Behold an army with horses and chariots was all around the city and the servant said, "Alas my master, what shall we do?" He said, "Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them." Then Elisha prayed and said, "O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see." So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So oftentimes you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. You feel like God has forgotten about you. You feel like we can be blinded to reality and we need the Lord to open our eyes to see, oh my goodness, wait a second. God is my fortress. He's my strength. He's with me. He's for me. The Lord of hosts is with me. The God of Jacob is my fortress. So that is who's with us. This is ultimate power, the commander of the armies of heaven and earth. But God's also referred to here in this refrain as the God of Jacob. What do you think the connotations are there? Why doesn't it say the God of Israel? Wasn't that what his name was changed to? Well, what was Jacob like? He was a deceiver. He was stubborn. He was slow to trust the Lord. So God of Jacob certainly must speak to the mercy of God and the willingness of God to deal with messy people whose lives are not a constant straight line of improvement and godliness all the way into heaven. This is the God who's a refuge for people who are like this, which is like all of us, right? Right? So isn't that good news? So rather than booting out the likes of Jacob or you or me, God is more stubborn in mercy and steadfast love than Jacob was in deceitfulness and taking matters into his own hands. God wrestles him to the mat, literally. And even though Jacob walked with a limp, he eventually learned to walk by faith in God as his refuge and strength. So the sovereign, omnipotent warrior king is with us. And the God of grace and mercy is our high and impregnable fortress. So don't miss this chorus. We've got to learn it by heart. It will help us know that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, we need to consider the past and the future if we're going to run to our refuge and help in the present. Point number two. Behold the past. Verses 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of Yahweh. How he has brought, past tense, desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Chariots were like the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a tank. So, do you see again 2 Kings 19, the desolation. Like, go ahead, go out and look. Look at what God did. So, this is what verse one looks like in the past. God has been a refuge and strength for others in the past. I mean, just think about that morning after. Hezekiah is totally freaking out. The people are freaking out. The Syrians have done this over and over again with other kingdoms. I mean, they're just, they're toast unless God comes through. And they wake up in the morning, and there's 185,000 dead bodies. How many times do you think it was said, in Hebrew, of course, you got to go see this. you got to come see this. Come, behold the works of Yahweh. So if you and I, if we're going to run to and trust in God as our refuge and strength in the present, it helps to behold the past works of God to look at what he's done for his people in the past, and we allow his past faithfulness, his past deliverances to serve our faith in the present. If he did it before, he can do it again. If God is for us, who can be against us? Look what he did here. Look what he did there. He can do the same for me. So behold the past so that you can, point three, be still in the present and confident in the future. Look at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Again, pretty familiar territory, maybe to many of us. This word actually is a little bit ambiguous. Like it can go a couple different directions um, depending on the context. So the verb for be still sometimes means like relax, <laughs> don't freak out, don't fret, calm down. But it can also mean desist, like cease striving, stand down. So in Psalm 37, 8, it says, refrain from anger. Refrain, that's the word right there. And forsake wrath. So stop, stop freaking out like stop fighting against God or taking matters into your own hands or whatever so you can see how there's some overlap with those two things but the point is cease your vain attempts at taking matters into your own hands like don't fight against God so sometimes I think we rage circumstances are bad we rage we complain we're irritable like God why why And sometimes we're freaking out and we're fretting and we're anxious and we need to be still and be quiet and calm and trust. So we can cease fighting, taking matters into our own hands. We can cease fretting and freaking out because we know that he is for us. He's fighting for us so we can be still and know that he's God. Stop raging. Stop grumbling and griping and spinning. I mean, I see this in my own heart so much, like griping and getting angry with how stuff happens. Like, why are you freaking out like this? It's not going the way I want. Like, so I want to be God. I want everything to happen. I want my will to be done on earth as it is in my own mind. So we need to be still and know that He is God, He is at work. So, we need to be still and know that He is God. I, sometimes the anxiety, the fear that, is, that uh, challenges us and keeps us from being still like this. Um, most of you know Betsy, Alex and Betsy. So, um, ministry partners that are uh, working in Southeast Asia. They're in Denver right now. They actually are COVID positive, so you can pray for them. Um, but they're heading back to, to Southeast Asia soon here. And Betsy's written quite a bit on fear. And she sh- shared some of it when, when they were here recently. And I was reading through some of it. And she had this great thing where she talked about how so often we focus on the what-ifs. All the what-ifs of what could happen where our lives just go sideways. And we fixate on that. And so she has this list. You know, what if my needs aren't met? I mean, I'll just read a few. What if things get really hard? What if I suffer? What if I die? And then she realized that there's a lot of other ifs in the Bible. Or you could say even so's. So if this happens, it's true that God will still be our refuge and strength even if that happens. So what if my needs aren't met? Well, if... Here's, a, here's an alternative if. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive t- and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? What if things get really hard? What if I suffer? Well, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What if I die? Well, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So, what are some of the biggest ifs? She asked this question at the end. What are some of the biggest what ifs in your life right now? Can you craft a biblical alternative if that's even bigger than that what if? Like, even if this is true, even so, God is going to be faithful. This promise is true. Did I explain that clearly enough? Okay. So, we need to be oriented to <clears throat> the promises of God in the future in order to be still and at peace in the present. So, do you see how it went past for the, for the sake of the present? Look at how he's worked in the past, and it will help your faith in the present. And then also, trust the promises, and it will help you live by faith and be still in the present. So, look at how the psalmist focuses on the future here. Be confident in the future. The future belongs to God, belongs to Yahweh. If God is God, nobody's going to thwart his purposes. He will be exalted among the nations in the earth. One day he's going to set, Jesus is going to come back and set the whole world to rights. All rebellion, all evil is going to be dealt with. So resisting God, perpetrating injustice and unrighteousness is a losing battle. Nobody's getting away with anything. No matter how much they may seem to win, the enemies of God will ultimately lose. He will win in the end. And this is among all the nations that he's going to be exalted. So he promised it to Abraham that in him, through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. All authority has been given to me. Go and I'll be with you even to the end of the age. And the gospel is going to be proclaimed among all the nations before the end comes. So the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So anybody that's fighting against that program is on the wrong side of history. This is going to happen. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So no, no matter how bad it looks like it's going for the saints, for God's people, We can take refuge in Him, and we can be confident that the future is in His hands, and we can be still. So this is a great comfort. If God is your refuge and help in the face of all the trouble, then we can rejoice. We can be secure. We can be at peace. We don't have to freak out. So let's, just in closing here, make sure that we learn the song by heart. Verse 11. We come back to the refrain again. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So look at this little, I I kind of already tipped my hand to this, but look at this little diagram here. Do You have that um, with the arrows. There we go. So Yahweh of hosts, There's nobody more powerful. This is transcendent, infinite power. And he is with us. And the God of Jacob, you know, down here with people with such messy lives and in need of mercy, is our strong tower, our fortress. So infinite heights, infinite power, infinite condescension to come down and be with us. And the God of Jacob, incredible mercy, is our fortress, impenetrable strength. So, have you ever had a friend in a high place? Like somebody with some real clout, some real pull? Do do you want to have a friend like that? Have you ever wished you had a friend like that? Like somebody with some real prestige and power? Well, if you did, or even if you didn't, you can conceive of this, the, the greater they are, that probably means that their very greatness gets in the way of your relationship with them, your friendship with them, because their time is at a premium. They're too busy to spend too much time together with probably anybody. They've got much bigger concerns or responsibilities that take them away. And so you might have some people that are friends that, you know, peons like you and me. (laughs) Um, And they can spend lots of time and hang out, but maybe they can't really help. So God is the greatest person in the universe. And yet he's also the most available and closest friend and faithful companion. This is not a zero-sum game. Like if he spends more time with with Beryl, less time with me. Praise God for omnipresence. I love Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, there's no one like him. I dwell in the high and holy place. So I don't want to come down and bother myself with you worms no and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit why to revive the spirit of the lowly to revive the heart of the contrite the greatness of his greatness makes the goodness of his goodness that much better And if you are slow at all to take that in for you personally, please look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, equal with God, took on flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and not some aloof king in a palace somewhere, but as a peasant servant he had calluses on his hands. He suffered like we do. He was tempted like we are. The King of Kings came as a peasant servant and he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's so fitting that we sung in Christ alone. Like all the security, all the refuge, how can that be ours? How can no power of hell, no guilt in life, how can we have our sins dealt with? Only in Christ. So this infinite height comes down, infinite condescension to rescue us, to save us, to make us safe and secure forever. No guilt in life, no fear in death, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us. If we are in Christ, if we're trusting Him as our Savior, we are safe forever. We are citizens of the city of God. And nothing and no one can shake that kingdom. So no matter what nature throws at us, no matter what the nations throw at us, it doesn't shake our security in God. No viruses, no riots, no upheaval. We've got to learn this song by heart. We need to sing it for the stability of our souls. So may this refrain ring in our ears, brothers and sisters. The Lord of hosts, he is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. God is our refuge. So let's be still and know that he is God. Let's run to the refuge. So there's this guy named, and this also came in Betsy's writing, I ran across this quote. Never heard of this dude before. Um, I think Spurgeon quoted him. His name is Fountain Elwin. Fountain. So there you go. If any of you are going to have kids or grandkids, you could just throw that in the mix as a possibility. Call your son Fountain. But he writes this. Suppose a traveler upon a bleak and exposed heath to be alarmed by the approach of a storm. He looks out for shelter, but if his eye discern a place to hide him from the storm, does he stand still and say, I see see there is a shelter, and therefore I may remain where I am. Does he not take himself to it? Does he not run in order to escape the stormy wind and tempest? It was a hiding place before, but it was his hiding place only when he ran into it and was safe. Had he not gone into it, though it might have been a protection to a thousand other travelers who resorted there, to him it would have been as if no such place existed. So where are you running when the threats come, when the trouble comes? There's lots of other functional refuges, things we run to, people we run to, stuff we run to. But only God is our true refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So let's run to the refuge, brothers and sisters. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing as we close. Oh God, you are so good and you are so great and your greatness makes your goodness even better and I pray that we would have eyes to see it and that our hearts would be thrilled by who you are for us, who you want to be for us and all of it only comes through Jesus who is the only refuge for sinful people and we thank you for the forgiveness and the cleansing and the righteousness the peace with you that comes through him so that all of these truths all of these promises can be ours so Lord help us to run to you if there's anybody here that came in this morning not safe in Jesus would you draw them in right now And for those of us who are in Christ but often wander and often run to other foe refuges, would you call us back and train our hearts and our feet to run in the right direction day in and day out? In Jesus' name, amen.